I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Intercooler podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 194 of the Intercooler podcast with me, Dan Prosser, and my co-host, Andrew Frankel. This week, we're talking about weird engine configurations and weird engines generally. Engines that basically work in a different way to a conventional piston engine, most of them from the early 1900s. Um, before we get into that, I will just remind you all to subscribe to the podcast or follow the podcast. Whichever app you're using, there'll be a little button that says follow or subscribe. Please just hit that. It means you don't miss an episode and it also helps us a lot. So thank you for doing that and enjoy this one. The reason that I suggested this topic, Andrew, is that I've Every sort of six months or something, I spend a couple of hours just trawling the classifieds, looking at Mazda RX-8s, right? Great <laughs> boy. You can, you can pick them up for buttons, but you can actually pick up a reasonable one with a functioning rotary engine, and we'll come back to the rotary engine in a moment, yeah. for a couple of thousand pounds. And They're such good cars. I, th- I just, at that money... I, how brave are I you feeling? To, I, I think I want to go and have a look at one or two and drive them because they might just be a bag of nails at a couple of thousand pounds. I don't know. Um, but, okay, so they've got that interesting engine that has its flaws, but you know, it has its charms as well. They look cool. They're rear drive. They've got four good seats. You can get people in the back. Um, they've got double wishbones at the front and a multi-link at the rear. So they're good to drive. Oh, I, I've done. What else is there at that money? I've done, um, I used to race them. I used to do very, very yeah. long races in them. And, I mean, they handle unbelievably well. You could, you yeah. know, I can remember that, you, you know, you could just sit on the back of Bewing 911s through the corners. I mean, they disappear down the straights. But, you know, they were fantastic things to drive. I mean, no torque low down at all. Yeah. Um, but surprisingly spacious in the back. I mean, you know, perfectly practical if you've got a small kid, which you couldn't yeah. say about a, you know, a 911 or an Audi TT or anything like that. Um, there's just this enormous question mark over that engine, isn't there? Mm. 
Yeah, there is. I, I might have to buy a car later this year, and it does need to be a bit practical for the baby. Um, but it's not going to get used very often, so I don't really care about fuel economy. Um, I don't want to spend a load of money. I don't want to sign up for monthly payments on a lease or a PCP or something. Um, I can't really bear just to buy a little dull hatchback. Um, so an RX-8, it just keeps, keeps sort of nibbling away at me. Um, so I might investigate it a bit later this what, year. What is the deal with those engines? I mean, we all know that they, I mean, we, we know about the, you know, the fuel consumption is not great. We know the oil consumption is certainly not great. We know about um, rototip wear. Is it that they all go wrong and they can't be fixed? Or is there a fix? Or if there is a fix, does the fix, is the fix only temporary and it's only a matter of time before it's going to go again? Yeah, I don't know about that bit. I, I, there are lots of specialists out there who will rebuild them, and it costs about three grand for a fully rebuilt engine. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a chunk of money. It's, you yeah, know, but if you're, not, if, you're not, if you're not putting a load of miles on it, which you probably no. won't be doing, no. and it's a completely rebuilt engine, I mean, it'll probably last you as long as you need to last it, and your investment isn't, isn't, isn't enormous. Mm. And then mm. at the end of it, you can hand it on with somebody and say it's still got a newly rebuilt engine in it. Yeah, I agree. But there are lots of them that have been rebuilt. So maybe the thing is to go and find one that has been. Um, the if you, When you look at the adverts, a lot of people, a lot of the sort of shrewd sellers show photographs of the compression tests. That's the key thing. You have to get yeah. a compression test done. Um, and if the engine has good compression, the rotor tips, the apex tips are, are fine and the engine should keep going. And then you just have to run it on the right oil um, a mineral oil, not a synthetic one, with the right viscosity. You have to look after it. You have to, you know, it does get through a lot of oil, so you have to keep on top of that. Um, but it seems that they're not the disaster um, they're often sort of held up to be. So you're, I, you're not just talking yourself into this, are you? I am a little bit, aren't I? <laughs> I, I am a little bit. But the, what else? If you can find a decent one, call it three grand. Yeah. Decent one that's been looked after, maybe had the engine done. It's just, there's just not a lot else out there, is there? Not, not, that not which will sort, not, not which will, you know, provide you with the rear seat accommodation. No, I mean, I don't know what you pay for an old, I don't know, one thirty i, one yeah. series, something like that. Mm, it's on the list. Uh, it's on the list. Yeah, um, something like that. You know, nice six cylinder engine, rear drive. You know, reasonable mm. space in the bud, decent space in the back. But that's probably more than three grand, isn't it? Yeah, a good one, I would have thought. Yeah. A good one. Yeah. So it's not easy. But anyway, the point of this is I've been thinking about weird car engines. And the 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 rotary engine is definitely one of those, isn't it? Um, um yeah. But there are so many of them. We'll talk about the rotary a bit more, but there are so many weird engines. I mean, we know it's being phased out now, essentially, but for as long as I've been writing about cars, there have been only a handful of sort of common engine types and they've all worked fundamentally in the same way um probably you've got four an inline four that's probably the most that is um, the standard conventional, most engine, isn't it yeah yeah um but when you start looking back through the history and when you particularly look back to the very early days of the motor car long before people had figured out what the best solutions were there were so many weird engine types that just functioned in a totally different way um and I mean, the sort of early 1900s, there's just so much ingenuity, yeah. so much creativity. It's fantastic. Yeah. So where do we start? 
Well, let's do the rotary. I mean, that's not an early 1900s engine. It's sort of 50s, I think. But just because we're on the subject, um, we'll start with rotaries. So... You know, there are two sorts of rotary engines. Oh, bloody hell. All right, before we get started, I just want to say, and I think you probably feel the same, we're going to be pretty much at the limit of our no, capabilities. No, I'm going to be way yeah. over the limit. I'm going to be so <laughs> far past my limit. There are going to be people who actually understand this sort of stuff who are going to be, are going to be shouting at us, yeah. going, no, that's wrong, or what about the this and the that and the other? Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't take it too seriously. Yes. Apologies to all of you. We're doing our best. Yes. Um, we, I'm not we, we just drive them. Really. We don't really know how they work. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So hang on, what are the two types of rotary? So there's the rotary you're talking about, which is a Wankel rotary yep. engine, where yep. you have the sort of the spinning Dorito inside a rotor. Yes. Oh, well said, um, yeah. And then there is the completely other type of rotary engine. I'm not hmm. actually sure this type ever got in a car, but I'm going to talk about it because it's um, it's cool. Um, this is the type of rotary which was really popular in the very early parts of the 20th century in aircraft. I think, for mm. instance, the engine that powered Louis Blériot when he was, became the first person to fly across the channel had one of these engines. Okay, and so there, are two, there were two sorts of aircraft engines that were popular at that time. One was a rotary engine, one was a radial engine, and they both looked mm. the same insofar as they both had cylinders radiating out from a sort from a centre, like a sort of you know a, a hub and spoke type arrangement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but whereas a radial engine had a central crankshaft that went round and round and round in a conventional way and the pistons fired, a rotary engine, the crankshaft didn't move. Mm. The entire engine spun around the crankshaft. So if you ever see mm. a rotary engine start, you see all these cylinders and then it starts and then they become a blur because the entire engine is spinning around a crankshaft that doesn't move. So it's basically, it's a sort of like a kind of slightly inside out engine. Um, but they That's were bizarre. really, really popular a hundred and something years ago. And mm. you know, so when people say rotary engine, you kind of think, well, what are they actually talking about? Are they talking about a Wankel engine, mm. which is what you're talking about, which is what ended up in cars? Or are they talking about what I think of when I think of a rotary engine, which is an engine with a crankshaft that doesn't move, but the entire engine rotates around the crankshaft rather than the, 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 the crankshaft rotating within the engine. So there you go. I'm glad you mentioned this. I'm glad Ooh. you mentioned this. Right In, in my research for this, um, this podcast, I found an article by our friend Sam Smith. Ah. Um, our one of our newer contributors, our US correspondent. Um, US correspondent, yeah. Um, he wrote a story for um, Car and Driver on this topic, and he wrote about something called the Adams Farwell, um, which was exactly that kind of engine—a a rotating engine, yeah, um, with a fixed crankshaft, and it was yes. fitted to a car in the very early 1900s. Um, and he, I think, there's barely an engine configuration, however completely unsuited it is to a car that some idiot hasn't thought, we're sticking in a car anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Someone's done it, haven't they? If someone's you can, done if you can it. imagine it, someone's done it. Yeah. Um, so they, and Sam actually says that this Adams Farwell engine acted as a flywheel once it was up and running. Um, it was well, it relatively would. light, but you've got much more than 100 kilograms spinning around. It was mounted in the rear in this car. Behind you, 1,000 RPM. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Just imagine. Yeah. Maybe nothing would go wrong, but it'd be in the back of your mind, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, there, there were other problems. There were the other reasons that all these engines didn't work in cars. Uh, one was, you know, obviously you get a fairly massive frontal area with them. Uh, they yeah. all have to be air-cooled, which is fine if you're at 15,000 feet where the air is cool mm. and you're doing 150 miles an hour mm. uh, because you're not, short of, you're not short of cooling stuff. But when you're stuck in a, you know, in a traffic jam... 
um, down on the deck and it's 20 degrees and there's nothing coming over. I mean, they were, they were just completely impractical for yeah. a road car application. <laughs> um, but they look really, in fact, I was, uh, I happened to be up at Bentley yesterday doing something and you kind of forget that before he ever made a road car, W.O. Bentley became most famous for, di- for designing um, an aircraft engine, which was a radial engine called the BR-1. Um, and it ended up in Sopworth Camels. And the, the only slightly sad thing about it was it, it came in quite late in the war because it was such a superb engine that had it come in earlier because the well, the Royal Flying Corps were using less reliable, less powerful engines, um, it could really have made a massive difference. So he made two, the BR1 Bentley Rotary. Bentley Rotary? Yes, Bentley Rotary. Radial, whatever. Uh, and the BR2, and they were amazing. Anyway, there you go. Um, so just while we're on the subject of rotary engines, we yeah. let's just cover off the Wankel rotary, which is what people yes. tend to think of when they hear rotary oh, course, engines. Yes. Yes. Um, used in Mazdas, NSUs as well. Um, as you say, you've got the Dorito. Yeah. It's a sort of Dorito-shaped piston with slightly convex edges, sides, rotating in an oval chamber, um, which is it means that it's beautifully balanced, super smooth. Yeah, you get massive power for the capacity. Oh, uh, the yeah, displacement. I mean, yeah, massive power for the capacity. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. it's amazing. So the, in the RX eight, you had up to two hundred and thirty horsepower from one point three liters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, technically, yes, yes. So some say that you can't. It's not a light for light comparison. But yeah, you're absolutely yes, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Incredibly smooth, um, you know, on paper, terrific, and you know, and you can get a number of these rotors together. I mean, for instance, the um, let's not forget Le Mans nineteen ninety one, the Mazda seven eight seven B, one Le Mans, and anybody who was there, or anybody who's frankly ever been to the Goodwood Festival of Speed and seen it run, will never ever forget the noise that thing makes. It is the most yeah. ear piercing, shrieking. I mean, it's 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 not a noise that any other car has ever made. It's mm. absolutely extraordinary. Um, and that did 24 hours and beat, you know, the factory Jaguars, and that had a four-rotor engine. Yeah. God. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, but to, so there are, I mean, they have their benefits, but they use a lot of fuel, use a lot of oil. They don't make any torque or much torque at all. Yeah. Um, it's very uh, difficult you know to keep on I, top I of the emissions the as well. RX-8. Sorry? It's very difficult to keep on top of the emissions as well, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I often think about the RX-8 because it's such an interesting car, that coupe body with the small rear suicide doors, mm. um, decent space in the rear seats. Yeah. There's nothing else like it. But that engine, it's we've spoken about it already, it is problematic, that engine. And if you're looking at buying one, you have to think about them very, very hard. And I do just wonder, would the RX-8 be a net better car if it had a more conventional engine, for instance, the flat four from the GR86. I, 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 until you bung one in there, it's hard to say, isn't it? Mm. I mean, clearly it was designed around that engine. I, I, I just like the fact that it's different. I just really like yeah. um, the fact that, you know, a company like Mazda is still sufficiently inventive and creative to do something like that. And it did work. I mean, it wasn't for everybody. Um, but I, I always thought those cars were really convincing. I really like the way that they look. And also, you know, don't forget that Buggy is such a small, compact engine. Um, you know, the benefits it gives you in terms of where you can mm. put that engine, where the weight yep. is, the um, the handling balance of the car, the, the, you know, the look of the car, the bonnet line you can get. 
um, you know, there are just sort of little benefits all over the place. Um, but obviously, it is ultimately undone by by the well known problems with it. But I think you know, on paper at least, it's a great idea, and you know, and I think it's probably the only rotary engine car. Oh no, I would have driven RX sevens, I guess. Um, don't yeah. really remember them. Um, so it probably is the only rotary engine car I've driven. But I just really like them. Mm. I would love someone to put that engine in a Caterham seven. Or oh, wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't that be good? What were we talking? Five hundred and something kilograms, two hundred thirty horsepower, nine thousand RPM. You may have just—you <laughs> may have just hit upon something there. <laughs> I can't believe no one's done it, unless they have, and I don't know about you don't, it. You won't need to talk because the thing will be so light. Yeah. Blimey! Interesting. That sounds like a TI project in all that spare it time does. we've got. There we go. Well, quite. We'll do it one day. Um, can you try and explain to us how the BRM H16 functioned? <laughs> Thank you for asking. Is it the only um, H engine? It is the only H engine. Uh, I can certainly tell you how it came about, and I can certainly tell you what it is. <laughs> okay. Um, other than another mad BR. I mean, these are the, these are the maniacs who produced a 1.5-litre V16 engine in 1949 and thought that that was somehow a good idea. And again, yeah, on paper, it was brilliant. But I mean, they were just so far ahead of the time. Um, you know, the technology simply wasn't there. So the H60, so um, BRM in, when was it? 1962, won the world championship with Graham Hill using a completely conventional V8, one and a half litre engine. Okay, because when BRM actually, you know, got over themselves and just made a normal engine, they were usually pretty good engines. Mm. They came within an ace, and I mean like a point, of winning the championship again in 1964 using the same engine. But the problem everybody knew was that in 1966, the rules were changing and a three-litre formula were coming along. So instead of doing what everybody else did and going away and designing a new three-litre engine, BRN thought, no, we won't bother because we've already got a really good engine. We've got a one-and-a-half-litre eight-cylinder engine, so... <laughs> Two of those by that by two. Oh, oh god, you get a three liter um 16 cylinder engine. We'll do that. So, what they did, uh, and, and, and almost literally, was flatten the V, mm. get two of them, park one on top of the other, gear them together, and off you go. That was amazing. So, the H16 was, I mean, yeah, it was almost all the internal moving components were common to both engines, were common to both the V8 and the H16. Mm. Um, you know, pistons, cranks, um, not cranks, but pistons, conrods, and so on. Um, but of course, you know, many a slip, twixt cup and lip. And again, you know, the theory probably kind of made sense, but um, somebody's just written something for us, um, which we haven't published yet, um, which I'm quite excited about for reasons I won't go into now. But anyway, it's, it's actually got a little bit about this engine. And apparently it took four people to lift it off the truck. Just well, the, that's the first problem. Yeah, it was massively heavy. Surprise, surprise! It wasn't terribly reliable. It did actually give really good power. It, in 1966, it was probably the most when it made its debut. It was probably the most powerful engine on the grid. But that was so massively offset by the reliability issues with it and by the mass of the thing. Um, yeah, it was just a. I mean, they look amazing. They sound amazing. They did win one race. 
Oh, it wasn't, yeah, even, wasn't, even, wasn't even in the BRM. It was in the back of the... So, the, so Lotus didn't have an engine, um, which they could use because the DFE hadn't been um, finished by 1966. Um, and so they went to BRM and said, can you lend us some, some motors? And so the Lotus 43 had an H16 in it, and Jim Clark won, I think, the Belgian Grand Prix in it, A, by being Jim Clark, B, by yeah. being lucky enough to you know, find that engine on a day when it didn't unstitch itself. See, I think by an awful lot of other people falling out, but it did win one race. Um, but that doesn't make it anything other than, uh, that doesn't stop it being a, you know, a fairly disastrous engine. Mm. Bloody hell. Just, just so complicated. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Let me give you uh, turbines have been used in quite a lot of cars, mostly racing cars. Yeah. Um, but also the Chrysler turbine car in the 1960s, which yeah. was actually sold to the public. I can't remember how many they built, but they did build them. Um, they looked amazing. Bodies were built by Gear in Italy and shipped across to the US. Yeah. Um, and they ran on this turbine engine. Now, often when I think of a turbine car, I think of a jet car with a... Yeah, well, that's, that's basically what they are. I know, but I think of the jet poking out the back and flames coming out and it thrust driving the car along the road, which is... No, so, so it, it's like if you think of the um, the Bluebird land speed record car, you're using, you're using a turbine to yeah. create energy to drive the wheels. Yeah, so yeah, what happens is you, you... No, no. <laughs> you're using a presser to draw in air, to compress that air, and it gets superheated, and it, that air goes into a combustion chamber, it's mixed with the fuel, that ignites, it creates very, very hot gases... Those gases drive a first turbine, which go back to the front of the engine and drive that compressor. Um, and then those hot gases drive a second turbine. So it's a, a fan, like a windmill, spinning very quickly. Yeah. And then you take a shaft off that um, off that spinning fan to yeah. drive the wheels. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, it's quite elegant. And they had their advantages. A couple of problems, though. A couple of problems. But let's do the advantages first. Okay. Um, they would run on almost any fuel. Yeah, you can, um, you can you can run on chip fat pretty much. Yeah, they so in the in the Chrysler turbine car that engine produced 130 horsepower at 36,000 RPM. They idled yeah. at 18,000. Yeah, made massive torque. Yeah, um, but well, for one thing, turbos are at their best running at a constant speed, aren't they? That's the thing. Yeah, they're not designed to constantly be changing their speed. That's why they work. That's yeah. why. <clears throat> you know, turbo fans, you know, the engines that jets, jet aircraft use today, which are, you know, very closely related, uh, are so good because they just, you just park them at a mm. certain speed and, you know, cross the Atlantic and the, mm. and the, and the engine speed never changes or very rarely changes. And, that, and then they're really, really efficient if you use them like that. But that's not how people drive cars. No, no. But that also explains why they, could work at Indianapolis, yeah. Indy 500 on Absolutely. an oval, yeah. constant speeds. Um, sort of competitive, or uh, you know, they had merit at Le Mans before, certainly before the um, the chicanes were put into the into the Mulsanne well, Strait. I mean, Rover came. So Rover did a gas turbine car, didn't they? Which was driven yeah. by I think Graham Hill and Jackie Stewart in 1960. I think it did it twice, 1965 maybe, and it came yeah. something like tenth. You might have it written down there. I can't remember. But... No, I don't. But creditable. Yeah. Fair... Oh, absolutely, absolutely creditable. Um, mm. Yeah, and you know, and it just, and actually, you know, in terms of 
the plans that they had and where that could have gone. That, that was just the kind of like the dip in the water. But there's so many things in the British motor industry at that time, you know, at, at that time, you know, inertia took over, people just lost interest and it got canned. It was a really, really interesting project. I mean, you wouldn't have got, you know, Jackie Stewart and Graham Hill, who were no. probably with Jim Clark, the two of the three best British drivers mm. in existence at the time to drive it. If it was just a, yeah. a, a novelty. Dream. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Same. Um, the other problem with turbines is, um, they're really good at speed, spinning at massive RPM. But when you take your foot off the gas, because they're mm. spinning at such a they tend mm. to keep going. Mm. <laughs> um, which, yeah. you know, if you want, if you need to sort of slow down in a hurry or even just sort of gently modulate your foot, yeah. you know, you pre- um, they weren't very good at that. So sometimes, you know, you might have to stop in a hurry and the engine was continuing to del- deliver thrust and that's not ideal on a road car either. Off the, off the top of your head, how did they do in the Indy 500? I can't remember. I can't remember either. I mean, you know, I think, I think, okay, so there was the, as the STP car, wasn't there? Um, yeah. I think it was really, really fast. It might even have got pole, but I don't think it finished. I don't know. That um, rings a bell, actually. That does ring yeah. a bell. Um, didn't, didn't Lotus experiment with one at... Oh, um, yeah, Lotus, the, 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 the 56 and the 56B. Um, they were both mm-hmm. gas turbine. They were four-wheel drive gas turbine cars. I mean, oh blimey, God. they were trying everything, weren't they? Um, yeah. And and they did go quite well at Indy, but they did. They then made, tried to make a Formula One car out of it. Um, and yeah, just this problem of, unlike Indianapolis, you know, most Formula One cars have have corners on them mm. um, or tight corners, which need slowing down for. Mm. And I think oh, I'm just trying to remember who drove it. I can't remember. I want to say Emerson Fittipaldi, but it seems a bit early for him. But Maybe it wasn't. But anyway, whoever was driving it, even at a place like Monza, it was absolutely terrifying because mm. you get to a point where finally you had to slow down and you put your foot on the brake and it wouldn't slow down. Just keep going. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, awful. But I, okay, so that didn't work. But I just love this age of <clears throat> innovation, actually experimentation. Yeah. Um, and the issue, the problem now is that engines are so well understood and the application is so mature that that age of experimentation is, okay, there are little bits and pieces going on, I suppose, with Mazda doing, what do they do, like a variable compression ratio engine or whatever. Yeah. Um, but really, we figured out how to make great engines. And experimentation... Yeah, and, 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 and also, you know, with, with emissions, and the, you know, the rule book is now so thick, yeah. there, there aren't many different sorts of engines that can become, can be made mm. compliant. So the, mm. you know, so 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 much of your engine now designs itself because it's got to meet these, it's got to meet these targets. Yeah, all sorts of engines, which are, I mean, I can okay. Back in the late nineteen eighties, God, I really am scratching the bottom of the depths of my mind here. There was a company called Orbital in Australia, and they were big on two-stroke engines. Mm. Um, and two-stroke engines again. It's, it's another one of these, you know, theory practice things. They are brilliant in theory because mm. they they are so efficient. You can get so much power out of them. They are absolutely cracking. But they're just not very. They weren't even very clean in the late nineteen eighties, let alone by modern mm. standards. And the whole orbital thing. I mean, I come and we used to get very excited about them because we were thinking, yeah, you know, because it, it was it was a completely credible company, um, and they had some very very interesting products, and the numbers looked amazing. They never, from memory, they just never got on top of the emissions. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> I can understand that. Well, I mean, I, a two-stroke, a two-stroke, I mean, I'm sure most people know this, um, but you know, two-stroke, the lubricant, the oil, mm. is in the petrol. Mm. Yeah? So it lubricates itself by, you've got a, what, you, what, what, a lawnmower? A go-kart. you got a go-kart. Um, okay, so you will know. I haven't have, driven for 10 years, but, but we you, have But it. you will remember having to mix the oil yeah. into the fuel. <laughs> Yeah, and you also remember the blue smoke that comes out of it all the time. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only oil that's in the engine, is the mm. oil that is being... So it's permanently, perpetually burning oil, and that's how it lubricates mm. itself. It's mm. not terribly clean. No, no, no. Um, but they, they're perfect in a, in a little go-kart because they just, they just go like the clappers. You they know? do, they just, yeah. They rev and rev and rev, and they yeah. oh, they're mega along so hard. Yeah. I mean, I can remember there were some two-stroke motorcycles um, yeah. in the 70s, Suzuki's and Kawasaki's and that sort of thing. Um, and they're such simple engines. They're so much simpler um, than a four-stroke engine. Um, you know, yeah. they don't need complicated valve gear or anything else. And they were just yeah. they were just fantastic. Um, and you could always smell one when one came past because they, you know, they, they, they smell completely different. And they, were, they were terrific little things, um, but hopeless. I mean, now, you know, relegated to, you know, chainsaws and head trimmers and that sort of thing. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, okay, well, let, let me talk about opposed piston engines. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm not talking about a, like a flat engine or a boxer engine. I'm talking about engines with two pistons in a single cylinder. And you might have multiple cylinders. But you've got <clears throat> two pistons, so there's no head. You've got two pistons that just move towards and apart from each other in a single combustion chamber, single cylinder. You're, you're going to have to give me a for instance. Oh, God. Well, mm, I, no, no, I can't. I mean, there is an example of it being used on the road, which I'll come to, but it, it's, it, but it works a bit like a two-stroke engine in that when the, when the piston is at bottom, um, ports allow air in and exhaust gases out um, and then the pistons come together again and then the explosion happens the fuel is burned oh, the piston, so, so the piston the two pistons together when they are together that creates the combustion chamber yeah okay yeah. and then then the 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 um so hang on the fuel so, so, so the crankshafts so you have to have two crankshafts i guess so at either end at either end yeah 
So it's almost two one-cylinder engines sharing a common combustion chamber. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, I guess okay. so. Yes, that sounds and, absolutely uh, nuts. Yeah, it's insane. Um, but there's an example of it here. <clears throat> there was a 3.3-liter engine of this type fitted to a comma um, truck or bus. It was supercharged, um, and it, yeah, it ran on diesel um, in the 50s and 60s. Made a load of torque, um, but well, for whatever reason, it just it just didn't catch on. So they have been used on the road. Wow, um, okay. it's just weird. It's, you know, I didn't even realize this before I started reading up about it. But there, there are engines out there, even piston engines, that just work in a fundamentally different way. Yeah, it's I mean, I do odd. quite like. To me, there's a nice, simple, neat elegance about two pistons coming together, and as they do so, using the space that creates as a combustion yeah. chamber. I can't. Mm. I do quite like that. Quite elegant, but the, isn't it? but the problem is that then just puts the usual bottom end of the engine, well, at the other end. Um, mm. So you've got to have mm. two crankshafts. I, I presume you have to have two crankshafts. I, well, I guess I guess so. Well, you must do. But <clears throat> ultimately, it's clearly history has proven that it's not as good as a conventional piston engine. No, um, even though it must have had its advantages. Yeah. <clears throat> um, okay. Right. I've got at least two more that I want to discuss that are really going to. Okay. Can we, can, can we just run through the W's? Yeah, we need to. Yeah, we do need to. Because there are two sorts of W's. Oh, God. Are there? <laughs> yes! <clears throat> do you mean um, if you've got two of them? If you've got... No, I mean two completely different configurations of W engine. Okay. Oh, well, go okay. on then. Both of which have been made by Bugatti. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. Keep going. Okay. So the W engine that uh, Bentley use, mm. yeah? That's not really... Well, it is a W engine, but what it is, is it's... Too, so when Volkswagen produced the VR6 mm. um, engine, which went in the Golf and the Corrado and a, few, and, and a few other things, that was a kind of engine that Lancia had done previously with the Fulvia, uh, which is a four-cylinder engine. And if you look at those engines, they don't look like V-formation engines because the engine is under a single cylinder head. But that's yes. only because the V-angle is so narrow. Mm. So instead of having a conventional V-angle of, you know, 45, 60, 90 degrees, you have a V-angle of, it could be between 10 and 15 degrees, that the engine is, so it's incredibly compact, and that's its advantage, compact enough to live all live under a single cylinder head. Um, and Lancia did that, and then Vol with four cylinders, and then Volkswagen did it with um, with six, and also five. Do you remember yeah. the VR5? Yeah. In Boras and Jettas and Golfs? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, and then that is basically what a W12 Bentley engine yeah. is. Yeah. Um, and it's also what a W8 Passat engine is. Mm-hmm. It's also what a W16 Bugatti engine is. What it isn't is what the W18 Bugatti engine is. I have never heard of a W18 Bugatti engine. There you go. Was this from the 20s or 30s or something? 20th century, 21st century. No, yes, 21st century, yeah. So before the Veyron came out, there were some Bugatti concepts. One was called the Chiron 18.3, Yeah. 
Right. And it was called the 18.3 because it had three banks of six-cylinder engines. Oh, my God. So, it, basically, it looked like a V engine, but with another bank sticking out the top. So, it literally, it looks much more like a W than a, than a normal W mm. engine. It really mm. looks like a W because it is literally... Yeah. Three banks of six cylinder end, uh, 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 six cylinders arranged in a W, um, and the, the, they had that engine. They ran that engine. They used that engine, and I don't know why they gave up on it. Mm. Maybe because the W sixteen uh, was ex- the technology existed. It was proven. You know, it was you know it was, it was thoroughly developed, and the W eighteen was just just a bit too bloody out. I mean, I do know. So W engines, and the, the sort of W that I'm talking about now, not the VR whatever engine, they were very, very popular um, in aircraft, particularly in the sort of 1920s. Um, and again, they're very compact, they're very short, they're stiff, um, and they work very well in aircraft because they need a huge amount of cooling because they are so compact. So they're generating a huge amount of heat in a very small yeah. space. Again, if you're in an airplane, that doesn't matter. Mm. Um, so that's why they worked in aircraft. That's why they didn't work in cars. But yeah, absolutely. Bugatti designed one and ran one. And my absolute understanding was that for a while, at least, they intended to use it in a production car, but never did. I had no idea. And that's there really interesting because I've always thought uh, the letter W doesn't describe the W engine as most no, of us not know. At all. It. No, it really doesn't. No. But there is an engine that, that is described by the letter W. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the Bentley oh. engine is two VR6 engines. <clears throat> yeah. I suspect Uli Icon will be shouting it. I'm Not sorry. VR8. Yeah. If there was such a thing. Yes. Two eights, isn't it? Right. I'm going to try and explain the well, night. Passat was, the Passat was a W8. So, yes, it's two of those. Yes. Yeah, two Passat engines. Yeah. yeah it, it's not yeah. as simple as that. And, 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 and please no. forgive the appalling sort of Philistine heresy that all this is but we're just talking in general sort of back of fag packet broad thumb yeah. terms yeah 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 which is what we understand okay yes. <clears throat> the night sleeve valve engine oh my god okay so it's just imagine a normal piston you may not be just, hearing from me for a bit no well i'll do my best one piston just going up and down um looks quite conventional except around it there are two sleeves that move up and down themselves. Those two sleeves are driven by a sort of secondary crankshaft. Um, and as those sleeves move up and down and the piston moves inside them, that's how you get the, the sort of valve effect. The ports open within the sleeves, allowing air gotcha. and fuel in and gas out. Yeah. Um, the point being that it does away with a conventional sort of head and you know valve, camshaft or pushrod arrangement. Which like in the early, early 1900s, that, that technology was limited. Yeah. So this chap, what was his name? I don't know, something Knight. He invented this sleeve valve um, arrangement. And there is a video on YouTube. Just go and Google Knight sleeve valve and you'll find it. It's a cutaway engine. You can see exactly how it works with the sleeves moving up and down and the piston inside it. Um, and it, did, it was used on the road. Apparently it was efficient and quiet, but it used lots of oil. Um, but it was just made redundant when more conventional um, valves, that technology we know now, just became better, better able to deal with heat and high RPM. Um, but that's such a great example of you know the early days of the combustion engine and people just trying different things, having bright ideas, 
making them work and demonstrating that they they functioned. I just <laughs> I just think it's cool. What I find so amazing about that is, yeah, even then. So, w- w- what year was this roughly? Early 1900s, so ni- yeah, 1908, actually. He patented it okay. in 1908. So, 1908. So, if you look at the engines that, I don't know, were powering 60-horsepower Mercedes and that sort of thing at the time, so conventional engines, you know, straightforward conventional engines, mm. um, you know, with big capacities. The idea that someone would sit down and go, nah, we yeah. can do better than that, yeah. and we're going to go and just do, do this completely other mad thing – Presumably for no other reason than that they can. I mean, they must have thought that. I mean, would you do it if you if you thought there was any, it was going to be anything other than better than what what already existed? You wouldn't do it, would you? No. And the thing is, they're they're all trying to solve particular issues. So this chap Knight um, didn't like the way valves worked and the limitations with valves. So rather than trying to improve those valves, which must have been doable, well, clearly it was. He created an entirely different technology. Um, which potentially solves that one problem, but of course it just creates many others, doesn't it? With the complexity of it and and all the rest of it. It's, yeah, it's just bizarre. I love that people are out there trying these different things. Um, it must have been a fun time. Um, right, one more that I want to give you. Yeah. At least one more anyway. I think it's, John, I think it's Eisenhuth, um, an American chap with the Eisenhuth compound engine. Again, this is very early 1900s. An inline three-cylinder engine. I can understand that. That's fine. That's easy. The Good. Two, Excellent. Move on. The, the two um, outer cylinders just functioned in the normal way, as, as they would today even. But the middle cylinder is dead. It doesn't have... Um, you don't get fuel going into it. You don't get a spark or compression. It doesn't have valves. Well, it must have valves of some sort. But it's a dead middle cylinder. That's it's brilliant. driven by the exhaust gases from the other two. Right. And it's it's the dead middle cylinder that provides the engine's output drive to the wheels. That sounds really <laughs> inefficient to me. Well, apparently it was more efficient. Was it? I don't I don't know why. I don't understand why. But I mean, evidently it didn't catch on, so there were big issues with it, but just this idea of having a dead middle cylinder that's just driven by exhaust gases, and that's where you get your power. Just bizarre. Just trying to think. I mean, but why? I mean, I, I, I just. But why? Yes. I mean, why not just use the other two cylinders to turn the crankshaft? <laughs> but, but the other two cylinders <laughs> must have been turning a crankshaft, which was therefore providing motive. But oh, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? Well, I didn't realise you were going to go that off piece with this. I oh, didn't well, realise you, you were going to go. I, I thought we'd we'd be talking about straight eight engines and just I not know. sort of particularly common configurations. I didn't realise you were going to disappear out into the twilight zone. I wasn't planning to until I started reading up, and I thought, oh my god, this is a way deeper subject than I could possibly have imagined. Um, is is the Chisetta V sixteen on your list? Uh, well, yes, it is. Um, but really, the interest in that is that it's certainly the only transverse-mounted 16-cylinder engine that there's ever been. Yeah. Um, but that was like... So, actually, the, I mean, the configuration is not that remarkable because, again, I'm thinking back... God, when, when was the Chisetta? 30-something years ago. And I never drove one. Peter Robinson drove one, I think. Um in the 1930s, 
Alfa Romeo produced a straight eight engine, which basically won everything. Before the auto yeah. unions came and the Mercedes came along and spoiled it, the Alfa Romeo straight eight in the Monzas and the P3s and everything else, it was the greatest racing engine in the world. And its secret, you know, the problem with, with straight formation engines um, is if they've got, only got four cylinders or even six, they're absolutely fine. But the moment they get longer than that, the crankshaft starts to whip. The longer the crankshaft, yeah. the less strong it is and it starts to almost like a rubber band and if it gets too long you know you just cannot rotate the crankshaft at any meaningful speed because it'll just break on you Mm. so what alfa romeo did was instead of taking power off the end of the crankshaft they took it out the middle and effectively what a straight eight alfa engine is is two four-cylinder engines joined together with the power Mm. coming out the middle not coming off the end and that got away from all the problems the Chisetta engine was the same. Mm. It was mm. two straight eight engines sharing you know, a common crankshaft with the power coming out of the middle. Um, mm. So in technological terms, it wasn't anything which Alpha hadn't been doing, you know, 50, mm. 60 years earlier. Mm. Wow. So why, I guess it's packaging that means it, that just made the V16 totally ridiculous. Side to side across the car. It's just nuts, isn't it? Well, if... if Yes and no. I mean, you know, the Lamborghini Miura had a transverse 12-cylinder engine. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one of the problems that you get with those transverse mid-engine cars is just access. How do you change the yeah. spark plugs on the other side? Mm. You basically mm. have to deconstruct your car to do it. Um, mm. But if you've got a big, wide supercar, then it's much less of a problem. I mean, you wouldn't try and do it in a, you know, a little fit X19 or something like that. But if you've got a big, wide supercar, it is less of a problem. It does concentrate the mass much closer to the center of the car because you haven't got this big long engine um it means you can have a shorter wheelbase um what you do with the gearbox is quite interesting um ferrari's solution to that was to um have the gearbox mounted at 90 degrees to the engine uh, which didn't work terribly well because the shift quality was terrible but you know it's not without its advantages um but you know no one has ever really I mean, Lamborghini gave it up quite quickly. I mean, they did the Mura, yeah. but by yeah. the time the Countach came along, uh, it was back to being a you know, a north-south longitudinal configuration. So no one has really sort of pursued that and stayed with it. So I guess it's just one of those things. It might not even have been, you know, a catastrophe. It might simply have been not quite as good or on balance when all things are, you know, weighed up, just less optimal than doing it the way that everybody else has done it. And what is great is that, people nevertheless give it a go, don't they? Mm. They think, oh, yeah. no, I know, I know people have been building, you know, mid-engine cars for goodness knows how long, and uh, but we're going to have one with 16 cylinders and we're going to put it east-west across the car and, you know, great. <laughs> but they, I think that V16 demonstrates <clears throat> why the Bugatti W16 works better because you've, you're huddling the cylinders together. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, like a crowd of people they're huddled yeah. together in a group the, the mass spread it's, out in a long it's line. incredibly compact and it yeah. works really really well i mean bentley always said that their w12 engine was smaller than some v8s it was certainly sm- much smaller much more mm. compact than any comparable v12 um the problem that you get with them is you're generating all this energy in a very small space mm. um so you get huge amounts of heat i mean that's yeah. probably why you know, Bugattis have what is it? I think a Veyron's got ten radiators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, a lot. And there's a reason for that. And and I suspect, and maybe um, Uli Icon will come on and say you're completely wrong. But it's always, I've always found it quite interesting that W12 engine, that six litre twin turbo W12 engine. I don't think they've ever got much more than 700, 740 horsepower out of it. Mm. Yeah. Which is, you know, which is less than, well, it's about the same as, you know, Mercedes are getting out of their four litre engine. So on yeah. half as much capacity again. And I suspect the problem is if you decided, which you should be able to do from that six litre engine to get 900 horsepower, it's only 150 horsepower per litre, same as an A35 Mercedes hatchback, yeah? Not even an A45. Mm. If you decided, right, we're going to get 900 horsepower out of this engine, I don't think you could cool it. Yeah, yeah. That's my guess. And that I think that's, sense. I th- Yeah. And that, I think that's the problem with, the, with those W engines. And also... The other problem with them is they just don't sound as good. Mm. You know, everybody mm. loves the sound of a V12. Nobody raves about the sound of a W12. They just they mm. just don't sound as good. No, no, it's true. That's important. Um, <clears throat> do you think we've covered off weird engines? Well, I mean, I've got, I've got. Um, it depends what you mean. I mean, I've got, Ferrari once made a W3. <laughs> <laughs> what? When? Uh, I think it was in the sixties. It was basically it was you know quite often um, if you're going to design an engine and you want to see whether your concept works, uh, you build a small part of it. So mm-hmm. I think Ferrari were going to try and do a W18 for Formula One, <laughs> and they thought, well, yeah. well, rather than build an entire W18 just to see whether the configuration works, we'll build a W3. So they built one-sixth of the engine. Mm. And then they clearly decided it didn't work. So was that three cylinders at sort of... Yeah, so, so, so that was, that, that was what they call broad arrow um, configuration. Yeah. yeah, so that mm. that looked like a W, unlike a Bentley or mm. a Bugatti W. Mm. Um, was it Chrysler, I think, had a W30? In a tank? <laughs> yeah. Blimey. I think there have been W24s. There bit, I mean, it's, yeah, the W is, a, is, 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 a, is an unmined area. Wow. Um, I think the maddest stellar, engine, though. although it sounds so completely conventional, I think the maddest engine I've ever heard of, insofar as I cannot believe that they built it, because I, I cannot see any way in which it was ever going to work, is Packard built a straight 12. <laughs> yeah and if a straight eight is problematic if, if a straight eight if you've got to do all sorts of things to stop that whipping around so mm. packard built so they had packard had a straight eight in the 1920s um cadillac had a v16 in the 20s which was a very good engine um and i think packard just thought well our straight eight is pretty good so let's do some more mm. and they built mm. i think they only built one um, and I think it ate itself pretty quickly, but they did build a straight 12 engine. Oh, bloody hell. Yeah, I mean, it just seems flawed from the get-go, doesn't it? It seems completely um, nuts from the get-go, but um, yeah. quite good fun. We we haven't even mentioned oval pistons in, was it Honda? Honda motorcycle engines? Yeah, yeah. that's because I know nothing nothing about motorcycles no. and motorcycle engines. No, um, well, that's a weird one. Yeah. Oh, there's a W6? Uh, okay. <laughs> In yes. the Rumpler Trophenwagen? No idea. 
No, nor me. Um, what else was there? <laughs> oh, the... Um, there was... Okay, so the weirdest... Look, go look this up. The Monaco, the Monaco Trossi. It was a Formula One car made mm-hmm. in... Oh, it was a Grand Prix car. I can't remember whether it was immediately before or after the war, but around that time. And that had a 16-cylinder radial engine in it. Blimey. So you see this thing. Seems, it's basically, we don't it's get this, these this anymore. Stocking great radial engine. Stuff, stuff. Can yeah. you imagine what that did for the weight distribution of the car? Unbelievable. Yeah. 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 No, no one's doing this sort of stuff anymore. Um, well, I think we did all right there, didn't we? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, thanks to you. Th- th- thanks to you and your sliding, <laughs> sleeving goodness knows yeah. what. Well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> cracking. Well, good. I hope that was vaguely interesting. Um, we have got a listener question coming up. It's a good one, this. Um, but before we do that, I'm just going to remind you all to follow the podcast or subscribe to the podcast. There's a little button, whichever app you're using, that will say follow or subscribe. Just hit it. It means you don't miss an episode and it really helps us. But this week's listener question. It comes from Sam, and it's very much um, it falls into the category of nice problems to have. Okay, right, and this is fantasy land stuff for me. He's got a budget of three hundred thousand pounds for a classic open sports car. Um, would he have an AC? Should he have an AC Ace Bristol, Ooh. or a Liston Nobly continuation, Ooh. or something else? And he asks of the Lister, and this is exactly what I was going to say. How much of an issue is the chassis tube being in the way of your heel position when heel and towing? Context is a couple of track days a year, but other cars for those. So really, it's a it's a recreation on the road. Yeah, so, I mean, they're just such completely different cars. Mm. I mean, you know, the AC is a lovely, beautiful road car, which, you know, they did race them. You could take them on a the track. But, you know, but the Nobly is an absolute maniac. Mm. It's a pure racing car. Happens to be road legal, but pure racing car. Um, mm. It depends. It, it, I, it, I don't think there's a right answer or indeed a wrong answer. It depends what you want to use it for. If, you, if you're going to be spending most of your time going, going around tracks, I mean, okay, what I would say about the modern continuation knobbly listers is they are completely brilliant. They are absolutely, <laughs> I mean, they are the same. They're built mm. by, um, by Lister Engineering. Um, yep. They have engines and gearbox provided by Crosswaite and Gardner, who are the absolute, you know, the people to go through th- for those sorts of things. Um, and I've driven original listers and I've driven a continuation car and they're the same. And they are s- some of the most exciting things I've ever sat in in my life. They are, I mean, they are ferocious. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've got to have your wits. About. I mean, they're not, they're not tricky, but they are just, they're so fast and so physical. And they don't do anything treacherous, but everything they do, it comes quite fast. I can remember driving one around Goodwood in the wet and being about as busy as I ever want to be in a car. Uh, so if that's what you want, if you want an utterly thrilling mm. um, 1950s style um, car, which to go basically i mean you know you can use it on the road and i've driven it on the road but you want to use it primarily on track lister if you want a gorgeous beautiful um english sporting road car that's not bad on the track get the ac Mm. i i have driven one of the lister continuations and yeah that chassis tube issue did bother me but it might be that 
<clears throat> with familiarity, you just stop thinking about it. You just stop thinking, honestly. I, I mean, I'm, I think it was going to bother me, bother me because I mean, I'm just not built to fit those sorts of things. Mm. Um, and I just don't and think about fine. it. But then I'm, I'm just used to, you know, being uncomfortable in racing cars. Um, <laughs> so, honestly, I think if you were out, honestly, if you were out there on a racetrack, you'd just, you'd just find a way. Yeah, just get on with it. I'm yeah. Sure. Um, well, thank you, Sam, for your question. Keep your questions coming across. Let us know what you get. Yeah, let us know what you get. Yeah, yeah. Do do email us back and let us know. Um, but yeah, we'll do it again next week. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just sixty bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince—they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and three hundred sixty-five day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.